source of true delight, whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight, that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding die. Please turn to uh, Gospel of John, chapter 21. Uh, if you don't have your Bible today, you can use a blue pew Bible. You can find it on page 907, bottom left-hand side. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 19. Gospel of John, chapter 19. Or 21, I'm sorry. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast a net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved Uh, Therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to them, said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you were stretched out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. The reading of the word. Well, good morning. 
Hello. Good morning. Yes, good morning. Uh, my name is uh, Orville Redenbacher. I'm just playing. It's the bow tie glasses joke. And I am, uh, actually, I'm Ryan Anderson. It's good to be with you all this morning. Um, brief introduction. I'm the campus minister who does RUF over at TCU. And um, we have been here for about a year or so now. And it has been a joy to be with you. So it's fun to be up here getting to worship with you and to open up God's Word together with you. Many of you have been praying for our little ones. You know that we have had twins and that one of them uh, is still in the hospital. Well, little Audrey, she's home. She's doing much, much better. She's getting chunky and fat. And so we give thanks to God for that. And then Evangeline, our other twin, um, she's still in the hospital. So please, please, please keep praying for her. We're just so grateful that you would do that. We have been utterly blessed by the way that you as a church have shown us who Jesus is, the way that you've pictured uh, Him to us. So thank you. Thank you so much for doing that. We have been severely blessed. Uh, On now to our sermon today. The past three weeks, uh, Keith has taken us through a series that he's called uh, Questions That God Asks Us. And we're going to continue that today, finishing it up. He's taken us through Job and Genesis and then on into John. And we're going to be finishing today in John as well. And one of the key things that we have said about this series is that often that there's more to the question than is initially presented. In other words, you may remember Keith saying, where are you, Adam and Eve? But it really wasn't just a question that God was looking to find location-wise where Adam and Eve were. The question went deeper, didn't it? And that's what uh, we want to look at today. I've titled this sermon, A Most Troubling Question. And you'll see why shortly. But before we go there, will you pray with me as we go to the text? Our Father in Heaven, You've been so kind to us. Would Your mercies endure forever. You call sinners to Yourself. You go and rescue them. And Lord, You have not left us without a word, without what You would have us to know about You. You come to us now in this text, and we ask that You would open our eyes, that You would open our hearts, unclog our deaf ears, that we might hear You, that we might rejoice, that we may know You, that we may know life. And Lord, wherever we are today, whether we come in a posture of having known You for many years, having walked with You for quite some time now, having loved You, O Lord, with a heart so full of love that we could almost explode, or whether, O Lord, we come in here deeply cynical today, deeply broken, wondering why the heck we even came through the doors. The Lord, the equalizer is, is that we're all in desperate, desperate need of You. And so we ask by Your grace that You would come even now and open our eyes to your word and to your word to us. Amen. Well, um, a few years, a few days ago, rather, Laura had wanted my wife Laura had wanted to go up to the hospital to see our little Evangeline, but at the time she was uh, giving Audrey, the baby at home, a bottle, and she couldn't quite get up there. And we knew that we wanted to ha- have this happen quickly, and so. As she's feeding our little baby, we're learning that a stomach of a baby is only so big, and it will only take so much. 
And so after she had fed little Audrey, she looked at me, Laura did, held that little six-pound ball of joy out to me and said, I'm smelly, Daddy. And me, being the smarty pants that I am, leaned in, smelled her diaper, and said, she sure is. (laughs) And then we both had a little bit of a laugh because we knew what was going on. Laura wasn't merely telling me that Audrey's diaper was dirty. She knew that, and I knew that. And that's why there was a little bit of a smile cracked on both of our faces, because she knew the way that I responded, knew that she wasn't just telling me a statement, but what did she actually want? There was two people in the, three people in the house. She was about to leave. There was one dirty diaper, and that left it for me. So she was asking me, more or less, to change Audrey's diaper. By now, you get the point. That sometimes our words do more than what they actually say. There's something that actually words do. Now, if you're a linguist, you know that this is the whole branch of linguistics called speech act theory, and it has to do with the way that our words actually do things. So what does a dirty diaper, a passive-aggressive dad, and the whole nine yards have to do with men sitting around eating fish on that shore one morning? Well, I want to suggest to you that Jesus' words, too, were doing loads more than than initially present themselves. This question, this thrice-repeated question of, do you love me, is actually quite challenging, no troubling. And we'll see why shortly. That my hope for us today is to actually see the profound grace that Jesus displays in this question to Peter. Why? Because this very same line of questioning is to us as well. And therefore, profound grace is on offer to each one of us too. What do I want you to see? Three key things. Are you ready? I want you to see the context of the question, the purpose of the question, and then lastly, what are we to do with this question? Put differently, let's look at the background, the intent, and then the response to the question. There's your three main points. I hope I'm being clear. (laughs) The background, the intent, and the purpose. What do I mean by the background of the question? Well, look with me in verses 1 through 14. What in the world is going on in this text? Well, you can see it there. You can see, first of all, that they're around a fire. Now, I want to look at this mainly in two kind of key storylines. First of all, the storyline of Peter, and then secondly, the storyline of Jesus. So, let's consider Peter's story for just a moment. For those of you that are familiar with the Bible, I don't assume that all of you are, but Peter was a fisherman, and he was called to Jesus to do the work of Jesus as Jesus carried out his own ministry. He was called earlier in the book of Luke, and Jesus began and continued His ministry alongside Peter. And as He did, Peter was often known for what? Peter was often known for getting in the way at times, of messing up quite often. Peter is one of my heroes, and we'll see why here in a moment. You may remember, Jesus tells His disciples 
that one day He's going to be killed and that He'll rise again and that they're all going to fall away. And do you remember what Peter says? Oh Lord, hold the phone here just a I'm paraphrasing. Hold the phone here just a second. If all of these fall away from you, I won't. You can count on me, Jesus. I got your back, so don't worry. So you'll remember that Peter says that. And then later on, as true to form that Peter is, in about John chapter 18, we see Jesus arrested. That Jesus is going to be taken to trial. And he's taken into the high court of the, of the, the priest, the court of the high priest, and is being put on trial, is being put on trial. And it's around the campfire that a little schoolgirl walks up to Peter and says, Hey, aren't, aren't you with him? Aren't you with Jesus? Peter says, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know, I don't know the man. And so the opinion of a schoolgirl won out over his best friend. And twice more, Peter was asked the same question and failed as well. And then, in a moment that no playwright could ever script, through a window in the home, Jesus turns and His gaze catches Peter. And then the rooster crows three times. Denial. Betrayal. That. It's Peter's story. And you have to see all of it as you come to breakfast. Secondly, what about Jesus' story? Well, we all know that this now is after the resurrection. He now stands with a scar-marked body on the shore calling His friends to eat breakfast. And without a doubt, John wants you and me to see that this event happens after the resurrection. Why is that so incredibly important? Think for a moment. If you're Peter or any other of these disciples here that day, and you know that you've committed the utterly shameful act of denying Jesus. And without a doubt, you would be wondering, well, I've blown it. I have blown it. I wonder what Jesus thinks of me now. And then you notice the hand serving you the fish. And it's wounded. There's a wound in it born for you. And Jesus is still present. He still remains there calling you unto Himself. This is grace. John wants you and me to see that there is a rock-solid relational security in play here. That Jesus' resurrection is the absolute proof that whatever was the barrier to Peter and Jesus' relationship has been utterly dealt with in the cross. The resurrection not only shows, but proves relational security between Peter and Jesus. Put simply, the relational strain has been dealt with finally and fully. This is the major backdrop a failure utterly secure with Jesus. You have to see that around the fire. Now what does all this have to do with us? We've read the text. Let's let the text read us. I want to ask you, first of all, are you able to see yourself as someone who has failed Jesus over and over again? 
Well, some of you, that's easy. By temperament, you have tender conscience that crushes you. And for others of you, that would be, you know, the most impossible thing in the world to try to come to terms with. You have failed anybody. And I want you to see, though, that Jesus provides a place to be an absolute mess, to be a failure. It's right here in front of Him. Do you believe that if you are in Christ, that your Lord so establishes and maintains the relationship that even the deepest and boldest of failures by you occurs in the context of deep, unbreakable, relational security? How do you think of God's posture toward you? Better yet, how does your life actually reveal the way that you think about this? Are you the sort of person that when God, when you have failed God, that you're always beating yourself up? You're just, you're loaded with guilt. You just have to pay for all your sins and it just crushes you. And I want to say to you, why? Why do you do that? Do you not know that Jesus' death was enough? He doesn't look back to you to beat yourself up. Now that's big time grace. You see what I mean? You see where I'm going with that? There's so much incredible freedom in the gospel. And yet, how many times do God's children continue to pound themselves, as it were, over the back to sort of make up for what they have done? Is the cross enough? Jesus says right here that it is. He most certainly does. I want you to understand this. The degree, to the degree that you are able to see yourself in that light, to the same degree, you will be able to provide a place for folks who fail you to be around you. Does that make sense? Are failures safe with you? Are they? The people who screw up, are they, are they safe with you? A huge point that Jesus is trying to make, and that's the backdrop. That's the backdrop, so to speak, of all that's happening. Secondly, what about the intent of this question? Look with me at verses 15 to 19. You see this dialogue begin to unfold. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he says, yes, feed my lambs. Simon, son of John, do you love me? And here we go around the clock three times. What in the world is Jesus trying to actually do with these questions? Well, while I can only speculate, I can't help but think that there was wonder and, and friendships being restored around the campfire that morning. Now, for Peter, there were no little girls to be afraid of. Or worse yet, any Roman officials. Just Peter, his friends, and Jesus. Oh, and the pink elephant. You, you know about the pink elephant, don't you? That thing that sits there on the beach or in the room that everybody knows about, but nobody's talked about just yet? You know what I'm talking about? You know the elephant, right? You know the elephant in the room. And for Peter, it was that, I told you I wasn't going to deny you, but then I did three times when the cooker got too hot, elephant. And Jesus, who isn't scared of elephants, goes straight to the issue. His voice cuts through the others. Simon, Son of John. Remember when your mom used your full name? You remember that? 
I can remember getting the Ryan Clark Anderson. Kids, what about you? Do you know when mom and dad use your middle name? You're either in hot water or they want you to pay attention. I got news for you. For Peter, it was both. Do you love me more than these? Jesus continues. And if you're Peter, those words cut because you realize you have said, guess what? If all of these fall away, I'll stay with you, Lord. I'll stay with you. And so the chatter begins again. The eating of fish continues again. And then the voice comes again, Simon, son of John. Simon looks around. Wait, what you, did he not hear me? Is it not Nathaniel's or James or John's time for this question? What's going on? Do you love me? Okay, good. You heard me this time. I said yes, the whole bit. The third time it comes in, the gaze holds Peter's eyes, much like it did in that courtyard that night. And he unloads on him and he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And the text tells us that Peter was grieved, that his heart was broken. He says, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. So what was Jesus actually doing with this line of questioning? It can't be that He really wondered about Peter's love for Him. Why? One, He already knows Peter's heart. Peter himself says that He does. you see that? And then secondly, it can't be that Jesus was looking for some sort of scripted response from Jesus. Or rather, Jesus asked these questions to get at the depths three times. Boom. 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 The depths of Peter's own heart. As if asking once weren't enough, by three times doing it, he puts Peter under the microscope. And most commentators note at this point that this is where Jesus is reinstating Peter for his threefold denial. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. I love you. I love you. I love you. So he's been reinstated. I think that's true, but I think it goes deeper than that. Do you see the irony of the situation? Peter has betrayed Jesus, not the other way around. And yet, it is Jesus asking Peter if he still loves him. And this is most certainly what you would not expect. You would expect Peter to be saying, Oh Lord, do you still love me? Do you still love me? And I want to contend and suggest to you that both Peter and Laura, I mean, and, and Jesus, like Ryan and Laura knew what was going on. Jesus, Laura was not in the Bible. Scratch that. <laughs> that they both knew what was going on. They sensed this deep irony. As I've worked at this over the past couple of weeks, I can't come up with any other reason than this. That Jesus' questions of, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Or ironically, a love-saturated expression of Jesus' profound and undying love for and commitment to Peter. Jesus pursues Peter, questioning him, and in so doing, Jesus reveals His own deep love for Peter. I'm convinced that there's no other way to see it. 
For it would be far worse for Jesus to have said nothing, to let bygones be bygones. But because Jesus loves Peter so dearly, He won't let relational hiccups be barriers for relational intimacy. He is far more committed to Peter than Peter is to Him. And that, my friends, is incredible news. Why? Because I'll just ask you, how committed to you, or how committed are you to Jesus? Grace. Grace. And more grace. One simple question. Do you know that Jesus loves you too much to not confront you at times? It's not loving for one bit for Him to allow you to continue to sin against Him. His confronting not only comes in the context of utter security, but it is also always done with the intention of recovering you unto Himself. Do you see how safe Jesus is for sinners? That's the intention. That's what's going on. Lastly, the purpose of this, this the, the, uh, how can we respond rather to this question? We've looked at the background and the intent, and now all that's well and good, but this is where the meat and potatoes really come. John, in this text, is asking a question. He's saying, how, do we, how can we respond? Now, I don't mean, don't hear what I'm not saying. I don't mean how should we respond or how ought we to respond, but how in the world are we able to respond when Jesus asks, do you love me? That's what I'm trying to get at. And look here with me at this text. Now, when you're reading this, like me, you may have read it like this. Are, are you kidding me, Jesus? Are you going to let Peter get away with that I love you business? And three times at that, don't, do you, don't you know that Peter is a sinner? Don't you know, Jesus, the doctrine of total depravity where everybody's so worn out and rotten that nothing they do is nothing they do can be said to be good? I mean, how, how do you let him get along with that response? He's lying to you. J- Jesus, come on. And yet, maybe Jesus is smarter than me. Maybe. Just maybe. Maybe Jesus already knows all that. Maybe that Jesus assumes how deep of a sinner He really... How could He not? Wasn't it just days or weeks earlier that He went to the cross for Peter? How could He not know this? As fallen as He were, at the end of the day, I am convinced that what Jesus was asking when He asked Peter, fallen as He was, Do you love me? Are you ready for this? Do you know what he was asking him? He was asking him, Do you love me? It's as straightforward as that. No frills, no cynicism behind it. Just as straightforward as it comes. And it comes to you and to me as well. Ryan, you love me. What is the baseline motivation of your heart, Ryan? What is the initial fundamental posture of your heart toward me? Do you love me? In other words, Jesus is focusing on the object of Peter's love. He asked, do you love me? And do you know what Peter does? 
Not perfectly, but certainly. In Luke 5, it was the same Peter, the same Jesus, the same sea. Both were fishing episodes, and both times Jesus tells him to throw his nets into the water to haul in fish. And in Luke 5, Peter is utterly terrified. He says, get away from me, depart from me, Lord. I can have nothing to do with you. And yet in this text here, in John chapter 21, Peter's jumping out of the boat, swimming to shore, halfway clothed, because he can't help but want to be with Jesus. Have you ever noticed that? Why? Because through it all, through the life with Him, through the cross, through the resurrection, Peter has now seen Jesus as that which is most fundamental to Peter's heart. And Jesus Himself, are you ready for this? Jesus Himself knows that all of the feeding of the lambs in verse 15, and that all of the tending of the sheep in verse 16, and all of the following Him in verse 19, doesn't amount to a hill of beans if there is not genuine love for Jesus. Now, step back just a second, because that is really, really hard for me to hear. Why? Because I find myself resonating with Shakespeare's words from Coriolanus. Listen, your affections are a sick man's appetite who desires most that which would increase his evil. I love all the things that are killing me. Moreover, because my heart has the tendency to love the wrong things, I use people, I use God to get these lesser things. What hope is there for a man like me? What about you? What hope is there? Allow me to go deeper still. You see, most of us, when we come to Christ... We come to Him more times than not because we need or want something besides Him. My own story was that when I started getting serious about Jesus was that I did so because I wanted a wife. And so I thought, well, I guess if I want a Christian wife, I guess i got to take that whole God thing pretty seriously. And so I did. Now, for those of you who have known this before, Jesus is incredibly kind and patient and gentle with us when, he, when we do that. But what I was in effect saying was, hey Lord, if you don't mind, I really don't want you. I'd like a wife. And that's deeply problematic. We do it all the time. Think about it like this. Some of us, say for example, you read Shakespeare but the real reason you read Shakespeare is to look for sermon illustrations. Now, I don't know who would do that. But if you do that, you're not reading Shakespeare for the delight of reading Shakespeare. Reading Old Bill, as Matt Foley would call him, would call him, uh, would be a means for a greater end. Some of y'all got that joke. So what do we have? Who will rescue us from our misdirected, misguided loves? And here's the answer. A little story. God wants to do a bait and switch. What? A bait and switch. I've gotten permission from this from my wife to tell you this story. Laura, when she was four years old, there's video evidence of this. Her brother was two and it was Adam's birthday. And Adam was opening up all these gifts 
And when Laura's present lust had gotten too great, she walked over to Adam with a gift that had long lost its two-minute luster and had it in front of him. And so sweetly said, Adam, here, play with this. And Adam's seeing his wiser, smarter, kinder, gentler, sweeter, older sister easily let go of that new gift and took the old one. And Laura ran away, called in on the microphone, operation bait and switch complete. A good deal for Adam? Who knows? For Laura? Absolutely. And here's what God wants you to know. God wants to bait and switch you. What? God wants you to see Himself as the thing that you now hold. And do you know that for someone to give you something that is better for you than that which you presently hold would not be called a bait and switch, but it would be called sheer grace. And God Himself comes to each one of us, having wrapped our tentacles, the heart's tentacles, around everything that hurts us, and He offers us today the same man that stood on the shore there with Peter. A Scottish preacher by the name of Thomas Chalmers once preached a sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Expulsive, that which means to cast out, not explosive, which means to blow up. Expulsive. And he writes about the way our hearts change the objects of which they love. And he says this, It is seldom that any of our bad habits or flaws are made to disappear by mere process of natural extinction. In other words, they don't just die. At least it is very seldom that this is done through the instrumentality of reasoning or by the mere force of mental determination. In other words, you don't just think the things away. But what cannot be thus destroyed may be disposed. And one taste may be made to give way to another and to lose its power entirely as the reigning affection of the mind. The heart's desire for having some one object or another, that is unconquerable. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. It is when admitted into the number of God's children through the faith that is in Jesus Christ that the spirit of adoption is poured out upon us. It is then that the heart brought under the majesty of one great and predominant affection is delivered from the tyranny of its former desires. And it is the only way in which deliverance is possible. And Chalmers is saying, in effect, that you have to see, you have to fix your eyes on the majesty, beauty, and goodness of Jesus. The only way that your heart will ever let go of the things that are killing you is to see the One who was killed for you. We need to see the beauty afresh of Jesus. As another pastor, Walter Marshall, put it, I love this. You cannot love God unless you know and understand how much He loves you. You cannot love God if you're under the continual suspicion that He really is your enemy. And so we beg the Spirit to do the things that the Spirit loves. What is that? To show us 
the beauties of an immutably secure relationship that the resurrected Jesus has with failures whom He loves. There is good news right there for your heart and for mine today. Oh, that God might grant us to see the wonderful, matchless love of Jesus anew today. The question at which we've been looking at all morning is a grace-laden question. Look at Him here in this text. See Him loving a failure in the context of relational security. See Him pursuing these failures, not leaving them alone to their own misery. See Him giving Himself for you. Why, dear one, would you remain so hard-hearted? Look to Him. Look to Him and live. Look to Him and see the beauty of a wonderful Savior who loves you. And oh, do it. Oh, do it. And do it to live. I pray that this might be the case for all of us. Let's pray. Our Lord, You are so kind kind to us. Move in us. Stir us, we pray, to see that You are absolutely wonderful. Help us to sing these words that we're about to sing about a bride not eyeing her garment, but on that wonderful wedding day looking at her bridegroom's face. Oh, that we might do that with joy. And that we might know delight that for failures like me, There is real restoration. Real grace. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a salvation. We ask this all in Your name, O Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. my fears away won't you chase my fears away